It was in 1983, I think, that John MacArthur Jr. was speaking here in town. According to some, and we made arrangements to have John come over for dinner one evening. You know how it is when you're having someone over that you uh, respect a lot, right? And we had four kids, the oldest of whom was 11, and the youngest was one. At uh, first we thought about a babysitter or a jail or something to <laughs> get the kids out of the house, you know. And we decided, no, you know, this is our family, so John's just going to enjoy our family. And uh, the one-year-old at that time was in that age when a lot of goo-goo-ga-ga stuff, you know, just a lot of words that meant nothing. And Jeanette teased him by saying, oh, you're speaking in tongues. Well, this was a time just after John had written his book called The Charismatics, in which he characteristically pretty strongly articulated his position regarding charismatic gifts. And as he was there in the house that night, um, John started doing his thing, just at the table, just speaking wildly. Uh, and Kelly, who was 11 years old, very innocently turned to John MacArthur and said, he's speaking in tongues. <laughs> I suppose that most of us from time to time have one, by the way, John took it in good humor, but uh, I suppose that most of us from time to time have had a question of whether it's right and proper to speak in tongues as to whether that is an experience that we ought to seek as part of the Spirit-filled life. Uh, we hear anecdotes and uh, read books and listen to sermons from televangelists that sometimes point us to this experience as a desirable one, if not an essential one, if one is to know the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In this section of chapter 14, Paul asserts that in the first section, rather, Paul asserts that there are three biblical priorities in the church. You may open your Bible, please, to 1 Corinthians 14 and just remind yourself in verse 1 that the first priority that he tells us the church ought to have is that of love. This is to be a lifelong habit for every congregation and every member of every congregation to love one another. And then the second priority is that of prophecy or the proclamation of divine revelation. That is to be a priority in our church, the declarations of the doctrines of God. And the third priority he talks about in verses 2 through 12, but he sums it up in verse 12, where he says, seek to abound for the edification of the church. And so the third priority is edification, the building up of the church. Now in these verses he makes it clear that the proclamation of the word is a gift that is to be esteemed more highly than speaking in tongues. That gift, without a proper interpretation, he says, does not edify the body. But the proclamation of the truth of God in prophecy does. So he exhorts them to seek that which builds up the church, which is the proclamation of the word. It is important to understand that the gift of tongues was a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit and that Paul did not condemn it in Corinth. But he did correct it, that is, correct the abuse of it. He says it is a weaker gift that tends to excite and which appeals to the sensational 
And so these rather sensational, carnal believers were careless in the exercise of the gift of tongues, and they selfishly abused it, though it was a good gift of God. The rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 13, is largely devoted to how they should consider the gift of tongues and then the laying down by Paul of regulations for its proper use. What we learn in this chapter is this, that spiritual gifts are beneficial when exercised in the Spirit. We learn in chapter 12 that they are given for the common good of the body of Christ. They are beneficial when they are exercised in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter puts it this way, that we're to exercise our gifts by the strength that God supplies. So understand this, that spiritual gifts given by God are beneficial when exercised in the Spirit, but they are baneful when abused in the flesh. They become irritants. They become problems. Spiritual gifts become destructive. As a matter of fact, God gives the gifts to build us up, but those same gifts can be equally effective at tearing us down if we use them in the strength of the flesh rather than in the spirit. Now the flesh, let me define that for you. The, the flesh, as I'm using it now, is that pattern of action that was imprinted on our minds and our emotions and our will by what we were before we were converted. It is what is left over still in us of the old man. It is the old programming that was a part of our sin in the past. And it is energized by the principle of sin that operates within us still, even though we are redeemed people. Paul makes it clear that we can choose to conduct our lives in the energy of the Holy Spirit or in the energy of this flesh. Paul gives to us an example of how a good gift can be wrongly used when it is energized by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. In these verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul takes three steps to correct the abuse of the gift of tongues as well as other gifts in Corinth. The first thing he does, the first step he takes, is to expose the problem in verses 13 through 19. The problem is twofold. The gift of tongues, improperly used and without interpretation, number one, is unfruitful to the speaker. He says this in verses 13 through 15. He says it provides a spiritual experience, but there is no edification for others. One who speaks in tongues where there is no interpretation edifies himself. Look back at verse 4. That's what he says. But the result is that his mind, nonetheless, is unfruitful. In other words, that gift, though it is an experience that he has, does not produce any benefit through his mind. 
He does not know what he himself is saying, and therefore he cannot make a contribution for the good of others. It's unfruitful to himself as well as to others. The second part of the problem is that the gift of tongues improperly used is incomprehensible to the hearers. Verses 16 through 19. He talks here about the ungifted, which probably means the unlearned or those who are without understanding. He says that the ungifted will not comprehend and they cannot profit from the words that are spoken when they abuse the gift of tongues as they were. And so that's the heart of the problem. It is twofold. It's unfruitful to the speaker, improperly used, and it's incomprehensible to the hearers. That leads him in the second part of the text, beginning in verse 20 through verse 25, to express the purpose of tongues. The purpose of the gift of tongues. It is found only here in the New Testament. He exhorts them in this part of the paragraph to be mature in their thinking by striving for intelligible speech that they can understand rather than emphasizing that which they cannot comprehend with their minds. And he says, that's not only good for you, it's crucial for the sake of unbelievers who are among you. Now notice that he gives the purpose of the gift of tongues when he says, verse 21, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And so the purpose of tongues is that it is a sign. It is a sign gift to the unbelieving and particularly to the Jews. He quotes in verse 21 a verse from Isaiah, actually two verses from Isaiah, the 28th chapter, verses 11 and 12. In that historical context, in Isaiah's day, he was telling the people of Israel that when they heard the speaking of a foreign language they did not understand, it was the sign of impending judgment upon them as a nation. That tongue in that day was the Assyrian tongue. The Assyrians brought judgment to them at the hand of God because of their unbelief and their rebellion. The Apostle Paul goes back to that incident, brings that verse up to his day, and he says, the strange languages that you are hearing in your midst is a sign to the unbelieving and especially to the Jews, because they had in that day again disbelieved and rejected their Messiah and judgment was at hand. As a New Testament sign gift, it is interesting to note that the gift of tongues is always mentioned where there is a Jewish context. You see that in the book of Acts. And in Corinth, there is a strong Jewish flavor to the church there. 
and to the whole community. And so it is a sign gift that was intended especially for Israel. And it is interesting that when Israel was judged by its dispersion in 70 A.D., this sign gift disappeared. I believe that is why Paul says, as he does in chapter 13, regarding this gift specifically, that it will cease of itself. It will no longer have any use. It will cease of itself. It's like if you were, you're driving out through South Dakota and you see these signs that tell you to visit Wall Drug. Have you ever seen those signs? You don't have to be in South Dakota to see them. You see them all over the place. But it's interesting, as you're driving toward Wall, South Dakota, you see sign after sign after sign. Stop at Wall Drug. But once you get there and pass it, you don't see signs anymore, except maybe one that says, you missed it. And so it is with sign gifts. They warn and they warn and they warn of impending judgment. When the judgment comes, they stop. They're no longer needed. They cease of themselves. Now it is true that a byproduct of this gift being exercised in the church was the edification of people. As people spoke their praises to God and those praises were interpreted so people could understand them. However, the gift was really a sign gift to the unbelievers. And Paul makes it clear that it was much better even for first-time hearers of the gospel who would come to visit them, to hear the word, to hear prophecy. He says it is better to proclaim the word, nonetheless, than it is to speak in tongues. Now, why is that? Well, he explains it. He says the word brings conviction, verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. In other words, the preaching of the word disturbs the self-righteousness of that one who is visiting, who is not a Christian. He tells us, secondly, he is called to account by all, verse 24. That is, the preaching of the word brings guilt. He is called to account. The word here means to be called to account as before a judge. The word of God becomes a judge to expose the guilt of the sinner. The third thing the preaching of the word does is that it brings shame. Verse 25 says, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. That is, those things that are hidden in the person's life, the Spirit of God using the word will bring to the open in his mind and conscience, and it brings shame. And the fourth result, then, of the preaching of the word is that it brings repentance. For the sinner then falls upon his face and worships God. And so the proclamation of the word, says Paul, is what brings sinners to faith. He says, yes, the purpose of tongues is for unbelievers and especially Jews. It has this purpose. However, it is still better to proclaim the word than to emphasize tongues. Because it is the word that provides for the Holy Spirit to invade the heart of the sinner and bring him to faith. 
And yet the gift was a legitimate gift. And so the third step that Paul uh, takes is to explain the principles regarding the gifts, verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Generally what he tells us here is that all of the gifts are for the edifying of the body. In verse 26 he says, What's the outcome, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. He says, whatever your gift, however you participate in the public gathering of the service, let it be for the building up of the body. For that's what the gifts are about. But more specifically, he goes on then to talk about some principles that are necessary to guide in the use of tongues and of prophecy. Regarding tongues, he says in verses 28, 27 and 28, regarding tongues, there should be two or three at the most that would speak at any one meeting. Furthermore, he says, they must speak one at a time. And finally, he says, an interpretation is always required when someone speaks in tongues. Those are the regulations, the principles, that Paul lays down for the legitimate use of this gift in the church in Corinth. Two or three at the most, one at the time, always an interpreter. Verses 29 to 33, the first part of the verse, he lays down the principles regarding prophecy. Again, he says, there should be two or three at a meeting at the most. Secondly, he says the content should be carefully examined by the other prophets who are there to make sure that the one who is speaking at the time is on target. He may be corrected. Third, these prophets who are speaking are to do so one at a time. And finally, verse 32, he says that there is to be self-controlled exercised. A prophet is not going to get up and be out of control. There must be self-control in the exercise of this gift, which suggests that that may, have not, may not have been the case in Corinth in some respect. And so he says, this is how you are to exercise the gift of proclamation in your fellowship in Corinth. Now in the last part of verse 33, by the way, I think the translations of the scripture that put a period after peace and begin a new sentence with as in all the churches are, are closer to what Paul was saying here. I think the, the last part of verse 33 really goes with verse 34 where he says, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law also says. Here the word law means the scriptures also say. Now what he does beginning in this verse is to give some principles regarding either one of these gifts. He says, I want to give you some principles that are universally practiced in the churches. These are not unique to you. All the churches do the same thing. In the first place he says that women are not to exercise these gifts in the public worship. Was that a problem? Well, we can only guess that it must have been. He says, let the women keep silent in the churches. Now, earlier in chapter 11, Paul had seemed to accept women who prayed and prophesied. 
and he did not condemn that, indicating that women had the gift of prophecy. And so does that seem to be a contradiction? Well, superficially it might. But in chapter 11, he does not mention it in the context of public worship. In other contexts, perhaps, it's fully appropriate. But here, actually beginning in chapter 11, verse 2, he begins to talk about their public gatherings. That is his theme. And he says that in that context, apparently, women were to keep silent. Now, there's another understanding of this. Well, there are several understandings. One of the most extreme is that women are never to speak in church. I don't believe that is all what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> Another understanding, which fixed, fits the cultural context of the day, was that men and women sat separately in the services. Families did not sit together. The men, the men sat on one side, the women and the children in another place. And uh, there are commentators who think that it is possible that when someone was speaking from the front and a wife did not understand something, she would say, George, what did he mean by that? And so George said, well, he meant this. And that there was disruption. Or that perhaps there was, because there were children present in, among the women, that there was extra talk going on. And the Paul is saying that that is to stop because of the disruption it was presenting to the service. Whatever the issue was, it was a matter of disorder. And so Paul is laying down this regulation. He says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. And so that, that verse tends to go with the second uh, interpretation that I gave you. It's improper for a woman to speak in the church the thought is, so as to disrupt God's orderly arrangement. Now we know from what Second or 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that women are not to serve in a church in the position of an elder or a de facto elder, where they are the ones delivering the doctrine of the church to the body. But I don't think he forbids women from ever saying anything in the service. Um, even the churches that are very strict about this usually have women who sing in the service and in who, in that sense, are teaching the congregation. And so I like to point that out to them, that they're not quite as strict as they think they are about it. These verses are disputed, they're debatable, and there's obviously room for difference of interpretation. In the few minutes that I have, I'm simply throwing out to you what I believe to be the best understanding of them. The first principle, then, is at least is this, that women are not to exercise these gifts he's talking about in the context of public worship, so as to create disorder of God's orderly arrangement. And then in verses 37 and 38, the principle is this, that the inspired revelation of God is the final authority. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Paul is here authoring these words with a full understanding that he is speaking the inspired revelation of God. He is demanding that they be subservient to what God says. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Verse 38 is just five words in the Greek. It's bam, bam, bam. He says, 
If they don't recognize this, they're not recognized. He just kind of wipes his hands of it that quickly. And so the inspired revelation that Paul is writing for us, as well as in the broader context, the inspired 66 books of the Bible, these are the final authority that we have as to how we ought to conduct ourselves in church. It is not culture that dictates how we conduct ourselves in church. That's happening far too much these days, and the pressure is going to get greater and greater and greater as our culture disintegrates and gets further and further away from what the Judeo-Christian heritage of our nation has been. There's a third principle regarding either one of the gifts. In verse 39, he says, Allow the proper exercise of the gifts, but emphasizing the greater ones. My brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. It was an appropriate gift, correctly used in the city of Corinth. So he says, don't forbid it, but, he says, desire earnestly to proclaim the word because of the greater advantages of that to the congregation. And then, finally, he says, everything is to be done decently and orderly. Verse 40, the fourth principle. Everything is to be done gracefully, in a becoming manner, one that is fitting for the church. It's to be done orderly, in an arranged manner. And why is that? Because of what he says in verse 33, which I think is really the key statement to the whole chapter. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Their public services had become a matter of confusion because of the disorder of God's people. And Paul says that does not reflect God in your midst. So what do we learn about the gifts and about public worship? Let me summarize the apostolic instruction in this way. These are the lessons that I see about gifts and public worship. Number one, exercise your gifts. They're given to you by God to be used, not to be sat on, not to be hoarded for yourself. They are, they are given by God to you to be used. Exercise your gifts in the energy of the Spirit. Beware taking your giftedness and using it for the flesh. Because that will destroy God's church. Exercise your gifts in the energy of the Spirit for the benefit of all with obedience to the Word. That's what he says about spiritual gifts. Secondly, he says, regarding public worship, gather yourselves. The writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves. Do I need to say anything about the influence of culture upon this today? And how so many other things come in the way of the gathering of the body? We gather when there's not something else to do. We gather when the family is not meeting for some reunion somewhere. We, we gather when it's convenient and give God that and say, we've done our thing. We are called upon to gather ourselves together faithfully. And to do that, number one, to edify the body. 
when we gather together, our concern ought not to be, what am I going to get out of this? Our concern needs to be, what can I give to the body? What can I give to someone else to build them up? And when I do that, the result is that I am edified. But when we come to the church with that American cultural value in view, what do I get out of it? We neither get anything out of it, nor do others. We are a Corinthian culture. And so it is appropriate to emphasize that when we gather ourselves together, it's to edify the body with respect for the greater gifts. Recognizing that many gifts may come into play on a typical Sunday as we gather, but with respect for the greater gifts, and we are to do this in graceful order. This word orderly manner that he uses is a military term. It means in precision. It at least means this, that we ought to value order in our service. We ought to value arrangement. We ought to value excellence in our service. I have been in services, and so have you, when on Sunday morning, the song leader waddles up to the pulpit five minutes late, opens up his hymnal, flips around and says, well, has anybody here got a favorite this morning? You say, well, that's wonderful. That's informal. It is not wonderful. It may be informal. It is not godly. Now, there's a time to have favors. Don't misunderstand me. But we are to do that in the context of planning, in the context of order. But you say, I believe in spontaneity. So does God. And I think that we always have to be ready for God to hijack a service. But it doesn't give us an excuse for not planning the service and planning and trying to carry it out well. And by the way, I think we have a man who plans our services, who's one of the best, who is the best I've ever worked with, and that's Paul Vanderwerf. He's the best I've ever worked with. And, and, and that's not to denigrate anybody else. I'm just being very transparent about that, and I appreciate the thought and the heart that he puts into these services that he's responsible for. Now, how do we do this in graceful order? One way, by being here in, on time. By being in our place when it's time to begin the service and not wandering in later. By showing good manners in a service. I sat here a few Sundays ago when someone was singing up here on the platform and watched a whole family with a line of kids come in and be seated while this person is trying to communicate a song. That's rude. It's disorderly. This is not pleasing to God. When someone is in the front trying to do something, and that, when, when the congregation's singing, then that's one thing, to come in. But when someone is up here seeking to communicate with giftedness and by the Spirit of God what's been laid on his or her heart, we need to respect that and show good manners. He says that we're to gather ourselves to edify the body with respect for the greater gifts in graceful order, and to be sure that we're not disruptive, but being sensitive to what God is doing. There needs to be peace. Peace is the deliberate adjustment of my life to the will of God, somebody has said. Paul here pleads for peace in this body of believers. 
God has provided for that peace, but now it was up to them, to each one of them, to choose how he or she would live so as to bring about that peace. And ladies and gentlemen, it hasn't changed in 2,000 years. God wants us to be at peace as well, not disorderly, not confused. He wants us to be at peace. But that's a choice that you make and I make with respect to our gathering together. So it's a very practical chapter, isn't it? It talks to us about gifts. It talks to us about roles. It talks to us about worshiping together and how we need to respect the presence of him who is a God of order and not a God of confusion. Let's pray together. And now, Father, I I pray that the Holy Spirit will help me and each of us to see what we need to do to be at peace with your word. Lord, if peace comes when we conform ourselves to your word, then I pray that we will conform where there isn't peace right now, where there's a problem. And that we will do that individually and as a group, as a congregation. Teach us, I pray, to be sensitive to what the Spirit of God desires to do in our hearts and through us in the lives of others that we worship with. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.